Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Ora Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. If Britain is going to have a shot at meeting its climate goals, one of the gnarliest problems it will have is with its energy grid. We look at what needs to change fast and ask how Britain's challenges are mirrored all over the developed world. And why remaking stage musicals into musical films is proving a winning formula for directors. But first... Welcome back. Thanks for joining us here on Live Now. We are following some breaking news out of the Middle East right now, and it is some very sad news. Three American soldiers have been killed and dozens more injured after a drone strike on troops stationed in Jordan this weekend. President Joe Biden has blamed militants backed by Iran for the attack. Over the past weeks and months, Iran's proxies have increased the stakes across the Middle East, targeting U.S. bases and shipping routes in the Red Sea. President Biden is under fierce pressure to retaliate. Some Republicans have called for a direct attack on Iran. Senator Lindsey Graham tweeted over the weekend, hit Iran now, hit them hard. At one of his first election campaign appearances of 2024, Mr. Biden asked for a moment of silence for the fallen soldiers. I want to point out that we had a tough day we lost three brave souls in an attack on our base, and we shall respond. The question now is, with much to consider in an election year, what exactly will that response look like? Since Hamas's attack on Israel on October 7th, Iran-backed groups in Iraq, in Syria and other countries have fired drones and rockets at American bases and outposts right across the region on 150 or so occasions. Fortunately, almost all of those have missed or been shot down, but it was only a matter of time until one got through. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defence editor. This attack overnight on Saturday, Sunday, is remarkable. For one thing, it's the first ever deadly drone attack on American forces in the history of warfare. It's also possibly the first deadly air attack on American ground forces since Korea. And it puts President Biden in a really difficult position. He's now caught between needing to deter Iran much more forcefully and avoiding a spiral of escalation that could plunge the region into a bigger crisis. Now, Shashank, before we get into the implications of this attack, let's zone in on those details a little bit. What exactly happened this weekend? Well, late on Sunday, a one-way attack drone, you might call it a suicide drone, 
launched at a small American outpost in the extreme northeast corner of Jordan, which is right on the border with Syria. It's been used for years to train Syrian rebels opposed to the Assad regime, and it's also been used to aid the fight against Islamic State. We think that it hit the living quarters of that outpost, and it killed three American soldiers and injured perhaps a few dozen others. So this is the first deadly attack on American troops since October 7th. And it's particularly surprising because it took place in Jordan rather than just over the border in Syria, where America operates the 10th base, a special forces outpost that has been repeatedly attacked in the last few months and indeed in the last few years. And do we know who is responsible for this attack? Joe Biden has blamed radical Iran-backed militant groups operating in Syria and Iraq. In other words, Iran-backed militia. That sounds about right. Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps has equipped, it's trained, it's supported armed groups in both those countries. In Iraq, many of them operate under this umbrella organization known as the Islamic Resistance in Iraq. Some of them have actually been part of Iraq's armed forces, which has made America's response much harder. And they have been peppering Americans with troops for months. In fact, the biggest incident until Sunday was a pretty substantial ballistic missile attack on the Al-Assad airbase in western Iraq that caused traumatic brain injury to a couple of American soldiers. Iran has denied it was involved in this latest attack. But if you talk to Western officials or even Middle Eastern officials, I don't think there's anyone who really believes that denial. How has America been responding? It's retaliated against these rocket attacks eight times. It's conducted lots of airstrikes. That was most recently a big set of airstrikes on January 23rd, which in fact, like the others, prompted a pretty strong public rebuke from Iraq's elected government. It's worth noting, Ori, that some of those strikes have been directed at Iranian targets. So on November 8th, American jets bombed a weapons depot in eastern Syria that was linked to the Revolutionary Guards of Iran. And on November 12th, it hit a training facility linked to the guards as well as a safe house in the same region. So they have been hitting Iran to a very limited degree. And of course, at the same time, separately to all of this, we talked a couple of weeks ago, and we've been talking quite a lot, Ori, about the American response to the Houthi missile campaign against shipping in the Red Sea. Of course, the Houthis, as we said, are also an Iran-backed group. They control much of Yemen. And the Americans have conducted nine rounds of strikes against the Houthis. So Biden is now under growing political pressure, particularly from Republicans, to effectively stop playing whack-a-mole and to go after the sponsor of all of these groups directly, which is Iran. So what do you see in all these Iran-backed groups and all these provocations across the region? What they show is that Iran is trying to put the pressure on the US for a variety of reasons. That's partly to do with the war in Gaza and Iran and its so-called axis of resistance, which includes Hamas, it includes Hezbollah in Lebanon, and it includes these militias I've been talking about. They want to show they are putting pressure on the US government and on Israel to end the war in Gaza. In addition to that, they also want to squeeze America out of Iraq and out of Syria. And that's not just about hitting these troops with rockets. It's also, I think, about knowing that if America responds, it causes a political crisis with the government in Baghdad. But what's clear is that there is now a sort of 
secret war going on, not just with America against Iran, also by Israel. Israel is also assassinating Iranian Revolutionary Guard personnel, striking Hezbollah in Lebanon and in Syria. And I think from Iran's perspective, it's trying to calibrate these attacks without provoking a larger conflict, without provoking a full-fledged war in which Iran knows, given the vulnerability of its own political system, the problems with its own economy, it also would come out of that looking pretty bruised. And now that American soldiers have been killed in Jordan, how do you think America is going to respond to that? A military response is inevitable, in my view. I think we'll see it very soon. The only question in my mind is how far it goes. I think the options are do nothing, which is politically impossible. It is another round of the same. In other words, keep hitting these militia in Iraq and Syria. I don't think that does much to placate Biden's domestic critics, and I don't think it will be seen to do much to deter Iran. Then he could choose to strike more prominent or valuable targets. For example, he could strike more revolutionary guards, bases, or facilities in Iraq and Syria. And finally, he could strike Iran directly. It's worth noting America has not conducted an overt military operation on Iranian soil since a botched hostage rescue in 1980. It hasn't hit Iranian forces outside Iraq and Syria since they hit naval vessels in 1988. So there isn't really a template for this. They did use American special forces to go after the IRGC in a covert, deniable way during the Iraq war in the mid-2000s when Iraq was sponsoring militia against American troops and was sending in bombs. But that was very secretive. And I think Biden needs something quite public, something quite visible here to really satisfy his political critics and to show the region he is standing firm. But Shashank, what are the restraints here? What's the dilemma that Biden is facing right now? It is that modest reprisals would seem inadequate to the scale of this provocation. But heavy retaliation, for example, attacking Iranian soil, it could cause other problems. Large-scale attacks in Iraq would further poison the relationship with the government in Baghdad. And that sort of crisis would hand Iran a political victory. That's exactly what it wants. Iran could also up the ante elsewhere. For example, it could encourage Hezbollah in Lebanon to intensify attacks against Israel at a time when it knows America desperately wants to avoid Israel opening up a new front in the northern part of the country. So it could use Hezbollah. It could also, in extremis, launch attacks directly against a wider range of American targets. For example, diplomatic embassies, civilian outposts, rather than just military bases. And so there's still a lot that Iran could do that it has held in reserve. And America does not want Iran to do those things. So Biden, therefore, has to strike a balance between deterring further attacks but also not introducing a wider war in the Middle East. Of course, let's remember, one that would cause a dramatic and serious spike in oil prices in an election year. All of that is going to be a very, very difficult balancing act. Shashank, thank you so much for your time. Thank you again. I'm sorry to always come with such depressing news. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. 
Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The burbling of the kettle, the flick of the light switch, the family gathering around the television. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Society is constantly reliant on electricity that's taken largely for granted. Fuel is burned, turbines spin, transmission lines hum, and energy just moves from power plants to urban centers. The whole process out of sight, out of mind. But Britons are going to have to become a bit more switched on when it comes to energy policy, because a big bill is coming down the line. So electricity grids have not typically spent much time on sort of political radars. They don't feature in political campaigns normally. And really, there hasn't been much controversy around them since maybe the end of the Second World War, when grids got massively expanded to connect urban centres with sort of faraway coal fields. Hal Hodson is a special projects writer for The Economist. And in the UK, the grid is one of the most stable grids in the world, according to measurements made by the World Bank. And it's also one of the least carbon intensive per unit of electricity. For example, about a third less carbon than the German grid emitted in 2022. But now the grid's days of quiet functional obscurity are coming to an end. And that's because of decarbonisation. Quietly efficient obscurity are over. My word, that's ominous. Hal, what do you mean by that? So there is no way to stop emitting warming gases and to halt climate change that doesn't involve a massive expansion and simultaneous transformation of the grid. You've got to A, stop burning fossil fuels to generate electricity and start generating electricity by using solar panels, wind farms, and also to some extent, nuclear power. But at the same time as doing that, you've also got to really expand the overall size of the grid. I don't mean the geographical extent. I mean its capacity. And that's because not only do you have to light homes and run businesses, you've also got to do two things that the grid never did before. That's run electric vehicles for the entire country and also to heat homes for the entire country. And the amount of energy required to do that is vast. And basically, it means the grid in Britain, but also in other countries, needs to get about three times bigger than it is now. So what does that look like on the ground, three times bigger? What is is this going to entail? It entails putting in a lot more of those big electricity cables that you see in the countryside. We're talking pylons roaming over fields. And not only do you need more of them, you also need the existing ones to go to different places. The grid that we have right now is designed to connect basically coal fields and power plants near them with urban centers where all of the electricity demand is. The problem is that the places where the coal fields are is not the place where the renewable electricity is. The cables that carry the electricity, they need to run out into the North Sea, in Britain's case, where all of the offshore wind farms are, and they need to run to big empty fields where big solar farms are. And so you need to both bulk up the existing grid so it can carry more electricity, and you need to change the shape of the grid so that it can carry the electricity from the places where it's generated, wind farms and solar panels, to urban consumers. So really just a great deal of capital investment and building stuff. 
an enormous deal of capital investment in building stuff. But more importantly, the regulatory processes that govern this are currently geared for this old kind of grid that never really changed. And they need to be transformed to allow a massive, massive build-out that goes really fast. And if they aren't, then you aren't going to build enough grid and you aren't going to decarbonize your economy fast enough. So what kind of regulatory changes need to be made then if all of that building can be done at the speed it needs to be done? So in the UK, what this means is that you no longer operate the grid through a private company. The grid operator is being nationalized by the government as we speak. And one of the biggest bits of legislation ever passed by the government was passed in October to allow this to happen. So a lot of what this looks like is a massive expansion of state control And we're talking about big centralized plans where a bunch of grid engineers sit down and say, this is what we have to do. The grids in most places in the world are in a situation where their regulatory regimes are not set up to allow the private actors to move fast enough to build the amount of grid that needs to be built in order to decarbonize. So what a lot of governments are doing is they are just taking the reins themselves so that they can go really fast. But in Britain, as I imagine in many other places, that notion of nationalization is going to create all kinds of political sticky situations, isn't it? Yeah, it does create sticky situations. You essentially have, you know, the government of the day in direct opposition, for instance, to communities that don't want big bits of electricity infrastructure run through their neighborhoods. Pylons in particular are just deeply unpopular pretty much everywhere on the planet, even though there's not really any way around that. The way it looks like that's going to be attempted to be combated in Britain, is to frame this huge build-out in terms of wartime effort, rather like the vaccine campaign in the UK, which got a lot of people to do something which maybe quite a lot of them didn't really like the idea of, but they ended up being persuaded to do it anyway for their good and everybody else's good. It's kind of the same idea that if you can persuade people that this is an essential for the nation, whether you're Britain or some other country, you can sort of ride roughshod over some of those objections and some of those sticky political situations. But even more pointedly, it becomes a question of who's actually going to pay for all this, right? Not the companies who are running the grid or the electricity providers anymore. This starts to fall on the taxpayer. Right. It starts to risk falling on the taxpayer. The traditional way to pay for grid infrastructure is that it goes on the bills of electricity consumers. And over the last sort of few decades, the proportion of your bill that is going towards the actual infrastructure is very, very low, approaching sort of 1% in places like Britain. And there's a risk in especially in countries where governments have racked up a lot of debt, which most countries have post-pandemic. There's a risk that the things that governments need to do, they will find hard to do because they essentially don't have enough money. And especially when there are projects that are riskier, particularly difficult bits of infrastructure to build, bits of infrastructure that have a high risk of being blocked by communities that just are stalwart set against this kind of stuff. The risk, I guess, is that there's too many of those and that the public purse fails to rise to the occasion. And then you know, as I've been banging on throughout this, then you don't have a grid that can decarbonize fast enough and you fail to meet your climate targets and the planet keeps hotting up. Hal, thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much, Jason. On the face of it, two major new film releases, Mean Girls and The Colour Purple, 
have little in common. David Bennon writes about music for The Economist. May I have everyone's attention, please? We have a new student. What's up, Kitty? Are you trying to make the rest of us feel dumb? The first one is a comedic depiction of young people negotiating the social structure in a contemporary American high school. And the second is a harrowing but ultimately uplifting story of African-American life in 1900s Georgia. Mean Girls deals with cliques, pimples and proms. And The Colour Purple addresses family abuse, rape and racism. What links them is not only that they are remakes of earlier films from 2004 and 1985 respectively, but also the route by which they have arrived on the screen, which is via musical adaptations for the stage. Mean Girls enjoyed a pretty solid two-year stint on Broadway from 2018, although it didn't reopen after the COVID pandemic. The Colour Purple ran for over 1,300 performances across two Broadway stagings, the first from 2005 and then in revival from 2015, and it's flourished in other markets too. The scheduled release later this year of Wicked suggests that there is a pattern at play here. Wicked is the first in a two-part film version of a hugely and globally successful theatre production. With Miss Galinda. <laughs> At last count, it was attended by 65 million theatre-goers and its receipts exceed $5 billion. And Wicked is largely based upon the classic 1939 film, The Wizard of Oz. The original film, of course, was a musical itself. It had a score written by Harold Arlen and E.Y. Harburg, including the famous title track. The Wizard of Oz was previously reworked as a film in 1978 as a black music-led production, The Wiz. Sweet thing, let me tell you about the world and the way things are right. The Wiz was a commercial and critical flop at the time, but it has since become a cult favourite, particularly with black audiences. In a film industry now culturally attuned to safe bets, with post-pandemic audiences dwindling for its preferred fare of franchises and sequels, projects such as these offer a double assurance. There's a property with the recognition value of an earlier successful film, and there's also its iteration as a proven hit musical. There's nothing truly new under the studio lights. As long ago as 1945, the celebrated partnership of Rogers and Hammerstein adapted the 1932 film State Fair as a movie musical. Other precedents include Little Shop of Horrors from 1982, which came to the screen via a stage adaptation of a 1960s B-movie. But as a 21st century formula, the model appears to be Mel Brooks' reworking of his 1968 film, The Producers. which included numbers he wrote such as the unforgettable Springtime for Hitler. 
Mel Brooks reworked The Producers in 2001 as a stage musical, and then it came to the screen in 2005 as a film. As to why this is a trend right now, there may be more to it than pure financial calculation. As is often the case with cultural trends, there's an eagerness to align to the mores of the moment, and certainly these newer versions seem to do so. Tina Fey, who wrote the scripts for both Mean Girls movies, says that jokes have changed. You don't poke in the way that you used to poke. Some critics have asserted that these changes defang the humour that defined the original Mean Girls film. With The Colour Purple, director Blitz Bazawuli and screenwriter Marcus Gardley have noted that they are the first black creators to take charge of any adaptation. There's numerous stage musical versions of films that remain up for grabs, but in the end, it will be performance at the box office that will decide whether they get the same treatment. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.